You are listening to the Ibn Abi Umar podcast. This is your host, Umar Osman. Assalamualaikum everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this is actually going to be the last episode until probably a little bit after Ramadan, inshallah. So we'll be taking a little bit of a break. Today's episode is a great one. We've got uh, Mubin Vaid on. And for those not familiar, Mubin is probably most well known for his writing. He shares research, insights on his blog at medium.com, Facebook. He's got a number of papers and research articles published over at muslimmatters.org. And his writing is not only followed by people like me, but also by scholars, imams, other people in that field that look up to his writing for his perspective. In this conversation, we start out talking about fic of social media and friendships, and we get into a number of different topics. And it kind of all orients around that theme of how we meet with each other, how we strengthen bonds of brotherhood and religious identity. And we even get into things like stories of experiences that we've had with Khatib. So we cover a lot of different topics. It's a great conversation. Hope you enjoy it. As always, this podcast is sponsored by my book, Fic of Social Media. So please get a copy if you haven't. We're linked up to all the places you can connect with Mubin in the show notes. So check that out. And we will get into the episode right after this little promo. The brand new book, Fiqh of Social Media, Timeless Islamic Principles for Navigating the Digital Age by Omar Usman and with a foreword by Sheikh Abdul Nasser Jangda is now available to purchase on Amazon. Praised by multiple prolific Islamic speakers and scholars, the book serves as a guide on how to maintain your spiritual integrity online, navigate the ever-changing landscape of social media, applying prophetic etiquettes online, using social media as a tool for spiritual development, and much more. Visit ibnabiomar.com to learn more. Mubin and I were talking about fickle social media and some other topics and decided it would be a good idea to start a pod, uh, to do a podcast episode on that um, and kind of to touch on a couple of different subjects. And just before we started recording, we were talking about the dividing line of 1985. So this is something that I start out the book with, which is essentially those born before 1985 are the last generation of mankind to experience adulthood before the advent of social media and smartphones and, and all that good stuff. And what's interesting is just the other night I was on Clubhouse. So the, I don't know if you're on it yet. You're an Android guy, so you're probably not on it. Uh, it's iPhone only. So no, no... Uh, <laughs> No, no Android folks, but we were, I was in a clubhouse room and I mentioned how this wasn't a new social media and how we had pal talk before. And someone in the room actually asked me, how did they have something like that 20 years ago? Did the technology even exist? And I was like, yeah, we had the internet, we had microphones, <laughs> but the idea that there could have been like an online chat app was just so mind boggling that this could have existed, you know, that long ago, which in reality is not a long time ago. So let's start there. What are, what are some things that you've noticed different in this quote unquote new age that's not really that old? No, so Zakhlakhir first for, for having me on. And I think this is a, this is always a good topic to discuss simply as, as a point of reflection. Um, you know, technology and social media is something that we tend to participate in quite a bit um, for many people multiple times a day. 
but it's not something that we really take steps back very often and just reflect on. One of the things that's really astonishing and remarkable when, when you take a step back is just to appreciate how quickly new developments become the way of the world. Uh, I still remember post 9-11 when airport checks changed and they introduced um, body scanners and the big public debate over body scanners. And I remember thinking at that time, this is gonna be temporary. People are not gonna tolerate going through that. It's so inconvenient. And now the idea of traveling without going through a body scanner, or at least having body scanners quite evident for a general population, is, is completely foreign. I mean, most people have completely, they've gotten used to it, right? You get used to something being there. Um, and the younger you are, the less sort of historical imagination you have of a world without it. Um, in some ways, you know, technology is far more ubiquitous and far more deeply entrenched than that. You think about a, a phone right, in the way that phone calls used to take place where you had a house phone and you called someone else's house phone. You typically had to cycle through people, and if they weren't at home, you couldn't get through to them. The importance of your answering machine, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> checking, up, yeah checking up on messages, so like, you know, you get home and, and who called the house, and if you didn't leave a message, the expectation... I still remember when, when my parents bought caller ID. Yeah. Yeah, and so you yeah. would know who called you, which you could not tell who was calling you before that. Oh, I mean, even even sales have changed, right? Because you didn't know when it was a telemarketer calling, right? The phone just rang and you picked it up. You didn't, caller ID was not a, a commodity that most households had. Right? You picked up the phone, you took it, and then you figured out who it was once you picked it up. And... I still remember that was that was a theme that ran on a lot of sitcoms where you'd have people that were annoyed with someone. I remember Seinfeld and shows like oh, that. Oh, yeah. I was they, thinking they, Seinfeld. They, they, yeah, they're like picking up the phone. It's someone they don't want to talk to. And then they start pretending to be someone else or they give the phone to someone else. Right. And today that that entire plot line almost doesn't make sense. Why pick up the phone? Yeah. Right? <laughs> just, just screen them. Right. So, so everything's changed, right? Everything's changed uh, dramatically. Uh, Neil Postman in Amusing Ourselves to Death, I believe, or Technopoly, one of the two. It's been a while since I've got them. But I remember he talked about the way that transformative technologies don't simply uh, append themselves to an, to an existing society, but actually change society overall. And so, you know, the introduction of the printing press, what you don't get sort of medieval Europe with just this additional tool and more books available, what you get is a new Europe, right? As a result of the printing press. And that's really what happened with the internet, the internet and all the technological advancements that, that were born out of that. It wasn't simply, you know, sort of the modern age with the internet, it was now the internet age. And we are shaped by the technologies we participate on just as much as we shape them. So, Perhaps more so, arguably much more so. Um, one of the things that it's shaped is yeah. is friendship. And I think that's one of the, for me, that's been the, like almost like a stark noticeable difference in how you hang out, who you talk to. What's weird is now people that I'm in touch with regularly are not often in the same city. That was not possible any time before. Well, what, let's, let's start there. What have you noticed in difference in friendship? Let me, let me throw it up to you first. Well, it's weird now. Um, in some ways, you know a lot more about people than you'd know in the past, especially at first meeting. And 
you know a lot more about people than perhaps they would even want you to know about them. You know, when you first get introduced to somebody and, you know, you're, you're just sort of feeling them out a little bit, you have icebreaker discussions, you get to meet and develop a rapport with them. Today, you know, the first thing that you get exposed to is, is a lot. Right? You, get, you get all their political positions and their ideological views and what they think about any number of really intense matters of public debate and, you know, how, how they participate and present themselves online, right? And suddenly, you know, what it's done is it's taken people who, you know, certainly for me, people who I really liked in the real world, and I look at their online self-presentation and say, I don't really like this guy. You know, or I don't like how this guy is presenting himself online, right? And so there are a lot of friends who I'm still sort of collegial with and friendly with in the real world whose online activity uh, I just find really distasteful. And I suspect people have that experience with me, right? I'm sure that people have that where they're like, they're, they're like, hey, you know, Mubin was like so fun. We play sports and we go grab some kebab and all that. And, you know, you can have a really deep friendship with someone for years, Without, you know, you don't, you don't. Without knowing that he writes 70 page PDF files for Muslim matters. Well, well, most, most, yeah. Like most human relationships don't come to a point where it's like every single time you meet, you're in the midst of a really, really intense argument or debate. Like Mm. most friendships aren't like that. Like a lot of time with friends, you're just kind of kicking, kicking it, shooting the breeze. Uh, Just watching a game. Yeah. Like just just enjoying really mundane activity together. Right? <laughs> and the fact that you can do that with somebody and get along and, you know, confide in them different things, have them confide in you differently and just sort of talk. And, you know, you have war stories with different things you've been through and stuff. I mean, that's, that's a different type of friendship. Whereas today what you have with friends are very artificial friendships where you can feel a very close affinity to people who you've never met who you don't really know. I mean, you're sort right. of trusting that who they've presented themselves online is a is a sort of verified and legitimate uh, sort of approximation to the, who they are in the real world. But but again, there's no sort of guarantee there. <laughs> when so when you say that you you've had friends that their online persona made you not want to be friends with them, well, is this because they were because of you know, political or religious views that they were sharing online or just general, you know, posting pictures of themselves doing things you wouldn't want to be associated with? You know, it's, it's, a, it's interesting. Sometimes it's just small things that, you know, you don't, there's a lot of things that you can just find cringe inducing, right? Mm. Someone's taking a selfie in front of the Kaaba with some, and it's just like, come on, dude, like, get off the phone and go do your umrah like, or whatever. Like that's just, and that's not even that big, like a violation. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I'll say you would have no friends left if you, uh, I know unfriended I know. everyone that took a selfie in front of the cop. I know I'm, I'm just mentioning <laughs> that as like a very small example, but there are, there are so many things that can sort of build up and that you find yourself annoyed by. And yet mm, it's yeah. very conventional, it's very conventional online activity. Right. And so, yeah, a lot of it is people's youth, right? A lot of it is people coming out and like opining on really heavy issues. And, you know, you're just kind of like, okay, where, where did that come from? Or it's really bizarre. And, 
you know, they're things that you know people think about, but they're not things that people necessarily front, right? Yeah. They're not frontal in, in normal human activity, right? Most interpersonal conversation doesn't start or end there, especially with people who you're not best friends with, but just acquaintances with. And even when you get to the stage where you find those things out, your relationships developed enough where you know how to internalize and interpret some of those more eccentric views and opinions. Now you have none of them, right? You have none of those barriers. You have none of those developmental experiences. You have none of that history with that person. You're corresponding with them in a place where you can't tell what their emotional state is. You don't know where they are in their lives, right? Because you don't, you don't keep up with them the same way. You keep up with them on social media so you can tell, okay, politically they're here or they think about this, about this issue. And sometimes um, when they're raging in the comment section, it's really acting out over something happening in their life as opposed to real passion for that issue or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of online dysfunction. There really is a lot of online dysfunction, obviously. And it's strange. I mean, it's strange because in some ways there's, there's something cathartic about being online, right? Yeah about being able to express yourself and state your opinion and have that opinion be validated, right? And have that opinion be acknowledged and recognized and listened to and listened to by people who you value, right? Like you actually value the fact that these people took the time to read what you had to write or watch what you had to post. And there's this, uh, that there is an exchange cycle that takes place on social media. So it's very powerful what social media enables for people who whose normal lives would perhaps be a lot more mundane. So one thing that I find interesting is, do you find yourself following or maintaining friendship with people like, well, let me put it this way. I've, you know, I see people post certain things. And if I don't really have a relationship with them, I'll probably mute them or unfollow them or whatever, right? Because I just don't care to hear this perspective on something that I don't necessarily agree with. But when there's, like you said, when there's an actual relationship there, right? Like, you know, you and I have probably debated on a number of things and gone back and forth where we disagreed, you know, maybe even completely, but we're able to actually go back and forth without it becoming personal or public or insulting or any of those things, right? How do you cultivate more of that relationship style because i find that i find that to be the exception where we can actually just go back and forth on an issue and disagree and like try to hash it out and even a little bit of you know iron sharpens iron right like if if we're debating and i'm trying to strengthen my perspective but when i go online and i just read people I tend to almost get into my own echo chamber because I just don't want to hear what other people have to say. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of challenges there, right? Obviously, the echo chamber dynamic is very strong. And so, you know, social media by this point is a pretty mature technology, just like most internet technologies have gotten pretty mature and they continue to mature and develop by the day. And so by this point, you know, based on your behavior and activity on social media, they've gotten pretty good at populating your timeline with views that coincide with what you think, right? So the idea that you're actually going to run into views you don't, don't like just happens less and less frequently, which itself is a challenge because you can radically underestimate how many people differ with you. And I think it's very easy to, to, uh, to have an unfounded level of confidence or frustration even 
right? A, a sort of misplaced frustration with people who hold differences, not recognizing the sheer number of people who have an opinion that just doesn't align with your own. Now, even if those opinions are really bad and stupid and wrong, the idea that you don't even have a clue of, of you don't have a clue of how many people hold that position, let alone the force that that decision has behind it can actually create a really hostile and toxic climate where in, instead of approaching different issues as serious issues, at least in a way that recognizes how broadly felt and accepted they are, you treat everyone who differs with you like they're just a bunch of idiots, right? Yeah. Like you just must be stupid to hold a view like that. One of the big issues on a lot of social media platforms, basically all of them is that, you know, they always talk about the performative angle of social media and that all of our discussions are taking place in public, right? And so when we differ, the likelihood that we're gonna continue differing in good faith is low. It's very low. Because it's a spectacle. Yeah, because the idea is that, you know, I don't want the other person to one up me. They don't want me to one up them. And, you know, it's you begin to lose patience with people usually after like the second back and forth in a comment section. (laughs) Even if it starts out somewhat polite, it's very difficult for people to resist the lure of insults and ridicule and pot shots, right? They'll start sneaking those in there. And suddenly you find yourself in a really hostile discussion. It's also, you know, even people who are watching it can get impatient. So they themselves will jump in and express what they feel is not being expressed forcefully enough or fully, right? they're They're not seeing their position defended the way it should be defended. And so suddenly all of that begins to spill over because now you have a really acerbic, antagonistic discussion thread. And, you know, everyone's being reinforced through the incentive cycles of likes, right? And so things are getting upvoted and, you know, people follow this stuff. I mean, I've seen, uh, you know, you know, you probably see this in WhatsApp groups, right? Where you'll see nested discussion threads that'll go, you know, 50 comments deep and people yeah. will share a screenshot of a comment. And I'll go back and find that comment and think, oh my God, look, this person read that entire thread, <laughs> which was Search four function. hours out of a day, at least taken to have this debate. And it's a very niche debate that is incredibly in-group, right? And yet it had a, a sizable enough following where it's now being circulated places. And so, so you're, you're always you're always in the back of your mind thinking about the audience in ways that you don't when like if me and you are out at a kebab shop and talking and having a disagreement, you know, that that level of intensity is is unlikely to to go to the surface. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're probably just like tired or, you know, what are we going to get next to eat or you know, we got to get home. Right. The conversation's just naturally brought to an end or you, you shift on, like you get whatever, like let's talk about something. Let's else, go get ice right? cream now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That just, that's just, there's, there's normal human dynamics that mediate and temper the way people, the, the way people discuss topics with one another that is not possible on social media and is, uh, is often deteriorated by these other discussions that just produce enmity right so your your facebook posts have been known to spawn 
a debate or two in the comment yeah. section. Oh, no question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How so from the perspective of someone who's writing and sharing content, yeah. how do you you know, how do you manage those discussions? Are you ever surprised by the there was one that you posted that even I think I even left a comment saying like I can't believe this is the thing that <laughs> caused everyone to fight. But are you ever like shocked or surprised? Or are you kind of expecting those types of reactions at this point? No, well, uh, you know, in your book, Cup of Social Media, you, you start off by talking about intention, right? And I think that's something that most people don't self-consciously think of when they think of social media. What do they want to get on it, out of it? How are they using it? What's their intention behind it? As, as I mentioned, one of the things, there's a lot of things that social media platforms are very, very good at. And one of them is hooking you onto their platforms. So social media can become a sort of compulsion where people spend more and more time on it. They're checking it constantly throughout the day. It becomes a regular stream of gossip and rumors and fights. And one of the things I try to do, at least personally, and I'm not always successful at it, is be very disciplined with the way that I use my social media. And so I very rarely comment on other people's posts. And I, I, I say that only because when I do a comment, often it will simply be to, you know, make do offer someone whose family member passed away or to offer a supporting remark. But the idea that I'm going on to someone's post and engaging in an active debate, I do it very, very rarely. And when I do do it, nine times out of 10, I, I tend to regret having done it right? Like I do it and I'm like, oh, why'd I do it? Like I just got sucked into this that I know there's no, there's no exit strategy. So what I try to do is say, okay, here's, here's the amount of time I'm going to spend on it in a day. And I'm not going to do it the rest of the day because I have a family, I have children. I want to spend the bulk of my day and time around them and not want their lasting memory of me to be, you know, arguing with some random person who I don't even know who's got this Kunya account and fighting me on something that probably is going to bring no benefit to that person, to a larger audience. There's no larger stakes at play and everything else. So I'm so, curious, have yeah. you ever changed your mind because of a comment someone left on your post? I don't know. You know, one of the things I appreciate are people who respond to me thoughtfully. I, I really do. And those are the types of people that I try to make an effort to respond to. I don't respond to everyone. So you said like the arguments, I don't respond to everybody. I generally don't. That's a rule. And sometimes I don't respond to people even who, and I feel bad about it at times because I feel like their, their comments deserve or warrant a response, but I just don't have the time. It's just, it's just uh, negotiating the, your own individual priorities and where your time can go. Your effort versus that, reward. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, for me to give this the level of attention it deserves is going to take me carving out 20 to 30 minutes to really author a decent comment that takes into account fully what they've written. And I don't have the time to do that right now. So I might like comments like that, but I won't engage with, I'd say, the bulk of the people who comment. I try as I can to, to engage people who I think are thoughtful and have really taken the time to read it, even if I think that they are being unfair towards the things that I've written or are angry or something that I've written is angry or has made them upset. I don't mind that. What I can't really engage with are people who are sort of uncharitable and remain uncharitable. People who are not in it in any serious way to gain clarity of either my position or even to understand, you know, what I've written or how I can have a view like that. 
but just sort of drop an insult or make a mocking comment towards me or to someone else, right? Usually when that happens, and, and I actually am less concerned with people who mock, ridicule, and insult me, and I'll feel that way more so when people will insult others, right? especially when they insult others. It's like, okay, you know, just, just calm down. This is not a way that people should, should really have exchanges and engage people who they don't know. Like there's something wrong with that, I think. And so usually what I'll do is I'll just sort of wait a bit and I'll unfriend those people um, because I, I just, I don't think, I don't think it's a productive use of my time. And it's, I don't, it's certainly not a productive use of their time. And what it does is it deteriorates the type of discursive exchange I want to promote, which is that I want to promote and have a space where people who have given what I've written thought to offer their opinion, even if they're disagreeing with me. Now, those people are never going to be safe, quote unquote, from me coming back and disagreeing with them, right? right. My own disagreement might be offered in strong terms, right? I might be confused. I, I might even uh, address them in ways that are, that are a bit confrontational, but I hope that I never address them in ways that are just insulting. And that's something that I try to be aware of that I, I don't. And, and I have, I, I know that in the past I've crossed that line, although I, I tried to, and it's because at heart, I get it. Like I get why people write what they write. Like there are times where people will just go off on somebody and they'll be like putting their finger exactly on how I feel. And that's what's so tough. Like you can bemoan bad social media practice all you want. But at the end of the day, many of the most popular takes on social media are popular because they're abrasive. Yeah, because they're pushing buttons and they're getting an emotional reaction. Yeah, like because they aren't giving their interlocutor any charity at all, because they are deploying the most highly charged language available. This person is a moral monster. And here's why they are. And they should be disqualified from having an opinion or participating in public spaces or being looked at as anything other than an imbecile. And when, the, when that type of dialogue is constantly receiving reward and attention, you have to realize the reason it's getting that is because in many ways, it's expressing things that people feel. Or at least get joy out of looking at, right? Like, yeah, they, they'll, they may feel it, but they would never say it. Yeah, like they'd, they'll look at that and they'll say, you know, well, that person has guts. Like that yeah. person really has, like it takes courage to talk. And I think there's, there's a difference between courage and belligerence, right? There are times where people write something that I say, okay, that's courageous because they're stepping out in a space where they know they're going to be attacked. They know that they're going to be confronted, and yet they're trying to stand for something that is principally right. But a lot of that is just self-aggrandizing. A lot of times people do that. It's vanity. It's, it's propping up their own brand and personal image. There's a lot of narcissism at play. It's, it's not the type of space that's really conducive to, you know, ikhlas and sincerity. How, so how do, you ba- how do you balance that as, you know, yeah. as someone that writes... Yeah. And, you know, when you write, there is an, to varying degrees, there's an element of you have to promote what you've written so people can find mm-hmm. it and people know about it. Oh. How do you balance that idea of promoting with the intent of people finding good and beneficial work while oh. also guarding against that narcissistic, bad type of oh. self-promotion? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I write, I'd say probably mostly for myself. So in some ways, there is a bit of narcissism to it, I guess, in my own writing. I, I enjoy thinking about certain issues and then constructing, you know, thoughts and, and putting them out there. Sometimes they're very pithy and concise. Other times they're far lengthier. You know, most of my writing is not when I write something that ends up being a status on my Facebook page, which is the only social media I use. It's usually not a status that I wrote on Facebook. So I write it somewhere else. And I write it somewhere else deliberately because I, I try to avoid writing on the latest, you know, social media scandal. Mm. Just because there's so many of them. Yeah. And they're very temporary. And there's going to be another one in a couple of days or weeks or whatever. <laughs> and I'll, I'll get messages from people saying, oh, you know, your voice is really needed. And I just think, why? You know, why yeah. is my voice needed? There's, there's a million voices. If I give an opinion, it's probably going to overlap and it's going to be redundant. And it's just going to say what everyone else is saying here. I would rather write on something that I personally have a passion in or find some measure of interest in. And if I do so and I write it somewhere else, then I sort of just copy it over and paste it on social media. I limit my time on it. I try very hard not to be driven by like counts and shares. You know, some of my, my own sort of favorite posts of mine are, are posts that didn't get a lot of attention. <laughs> oh, you know, same. The, the, yeah. My favorite stuff that I've written is stuff that got like zero shares. Yeah, it's just it's just something that was, um, you know, and other things that really got a lot of circulation I've been surprised by. Uh, I didn't think that it would get that type of circulation. Suddenly I turn up and it's gotten, you know, 100 likes. And you know, for me, that's a lot, I guess. And then, you know, a couple of dozen shares or something, which which I didn't anticipate. So... You know, in some ways, there there isn't always a predictability to it, but I, I try to I try to use my own judgment in terms of okay, what what do I what am I interested in? Is that interest something that I think, you know, bears some broader benefit? Sometimes it's just a passing thought. You know, I'll write about sports or something on occasion. You know. Um, yeah, you're. So I'm, I'm a glutton for punishment. You know, the Rockets and the Cowboys and stuff, and so. <laughs> I'll, I'll write about them on occasion. That's that's kind of it, you know. I had an issue with one of your sports takes, but I can't remember what it was now. Yeah, I don't know. And even your where where did you stand on LeBron versus MJ? Oh, I, I think LeBron's better than MJ. Okay, never mind. We're on the same page then. Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah Maybe so. it was the shared misery of being in that group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people people get really riled up. It's it, it's weird. I actually think in COVID that whole goat debate has gotten so much bigger. Um, partly because sports, you know, sports has always been a release, right? And I think people who don't watch sports are very cynical about sports and they're quick to dismiss it. But I think they're quick to dismiss it because they just don't get what sports brings to the table for people socially. Sports to me is very accessible, right? In terms of you can meet someone for the first time, have nothing in common with them, but you know, they watch sports, you watch sports, and suddenly you can find yourself engaged in a conversation that can be really fruitful and fun, and that can develop a lasting relationship, right, in yeah. ways that are surprisingly rigorous and durable in ways that you would never expect. And yet that entire foundation upon which that friendship was formed was some banter over, you know, LeBron versus MJ right yeah <laughs> something like that yeah i was gonna say even you know even if we if we really want to stretch like that religious perspective even some of my best muslim friends our hanging out time is usually sports oriented yeah you yeah. know before i retired it was playing basketball 
Yeah. Right. Now, now I'm, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little uh, past my prime. Liability but, on the court. Yeah. But then it's, you know, it's watching games or getting together to see the playoffs or super, you know, on a Super Bowl is kind of the cliche one, but yeah, it's it's a a good way to just hang out. Yeah, and it's and it's it's one of the few spaces in modern sort of life that isn't just totally encumbered in debates of politics and everything else that's going on in some ways sports is an escape right now people people always say okay well sports you know these leagues have made their leagues political because they've in integrated into their leagues uh, a lot of jingoism historically so like the national anthem and honoring the military and all that but usually those are those are very small parts of the event right i mean if you watch i mean most people who watch uh, a football game on Sunday. Don't even watch the national anthem. The game yeah. doesn't start till kickoff. You're just watching pregame. And if you watch an NBA game, it's the same thing. I mean, you don't you don't even see the national anthem on a you know, TNT NBA game. You know, going into it, you're just you're just seeing Charles Barkley and Shaq argue for exactly. an hour about you know, oh, we used to play like this in our day and. You know, that type of thing and they're funny and whatever right it's just it's just a sports discussion and you can have some really fun fun moments and just just kind of check out a little bit watching sports now you know any any obsession can be unhealthy people who get obsessed with sports and spend altogether way too much time on sports and all that it's just like anything else right it, it, it's, it's not sort of virtuous just to spend all your time on sports but sports as a sort of supplementary occasional situational outlet for people who, who you know, the rest of their life is, is really heavy and loaded. I, I don't think is a bad thing. And I think in a lot of ways can be very unifying, really easy way to form solidarities with people and make friendships and have discussions. And you conversations. Know, it's funny. This is one thing that I've, I've been thinking about coming across stuff on this lately is the idea of how we're always pressured to be on Right. Yeah. Whether it's whether it's professionally, you're expected to always be productive, efficient, always developing, you know, always learning stuff related to your job. Yeah. When it comes to religion, it's the same thing, too. Right. There's always pressure of like, oh, all your free time needs to be dedicated in ibadah or worship or something productive and something beneficial. And it, it's almost like there's no downtime or a way to have healthy downtime or rest. Yeah. Yeah. No. And sports is usually a downtime activity. It's weird because in some ways social media is a downtime activity, but it's a very intense downtime. And it's a very toxic and intense downtime because it's it often feels like a war zone, right? There's just a lot of combat taking place. I There's feel you know, I feel like the same way people argue about MJ and LeBron, right? Yeah. Or Yankees, yeah. Red Sox or or whatever. Yeah is really the same thing with politics and social issues. I think it's sometimes yeah. less of a vested interest and more of like a hobby, kind of like WWE where it's, you know, it's fake, you know, it has no relevance to anything in the real world, but people are all into it. Well, you know, it's weird. I think you're right. I think for a lot of people, it is that, which is bad because what it does is it creates a lot more people who are artificially committed to certain causes. Yeah. In the past, for instance, the number of people who were pro-Palestine in a really assertive way. It was very small in number. Um, in the Muslim community, it was a lot of the older generation, right? The younger generation wasn't that into Palestine advocacy. And I remember growing up and, you know, even on campuses, it, you know, there would there'd be some events here and there, but it wasn't taken for granted 
that students and anyone else would be interested in that topic. And most people weren't sort of putting them out there, putting themselves out there on that type of, on those types of things today many more people are deeply invested on a topic like that. And so that's sort of good, but it's also problematic in that, you know, people who at that time were invested, actually invested in the cause, ended up making a lot of sacrifice. They made a lot of sacrifice individually in the things that they bought, in the places that they visited, where they ate, where they didn't eat, you know, organizations they'd be affiliated in, where they spent their weekends and free time. They, they, it, was, it was lived in a much more serious way than people who are sort of freedom fighters for these causes online, but whose who's real lived life, lived sort of experience doesn't bear any of that out in a serious way. They're just sharing articles on it all the time. Right? Like they're constantly sharing articles such that when you looked at them, you think like, okay, this is the symbol of who this person is. This is their brand. This is emblematic of who their personhood is. You would assume something much larger about them and yet in the real world, they're just, they're just sort of living and not actually contributing to it. So I think that becomes a problem. But the other part of it is, and this is where, you know, the old cliche about Twitter's not real life. I actually think that cliche has, has, has outlived itself in some ways. Increasingly, Twitter is real life. Oh, I mean, the insurrection yeah. proved it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yeah, the Capitol Hill riots and everything else, like there's, there's an extent to which things that trend and go viral on social media are now witnessed almost immediately in the real world. And they shape institutions and they shape activity on campuses and religious organizations and everything else. This was not always the case. You know, you could have this really raging debate on social media over masjids, right? And then you yeah. go to your masjid and you'd be like, okay, like, it's like, we're just, <laughs> we, can, we can tune that out. And like 99% of the people here have no idea what any of that stuff is. Yeah, it's a very theoretical right. discussion that has no application when you actually go to your physical community. Yeah, I mean, you just say, okay, you know, our message still working. And yeah, it's got its flaws, everybody has flaws, but we're working and we have a community event and it's, it's much more rudimentary. We have the next program and we're all just, you know, our, our sort of, you know, arguments and debates in the community have to do with things that are completely unrelated to the types of fights that are occurring on topics on social media. And it was weird for me because you'd hear these arguments on social media about, oh, our, our masjids are totally irrelevant and, you know, they're dying. By, and then you'd go to the masjid and they'd just be packed and people are attending and they have all these, you know, successful events. And, <laughs> and so you'd see these doomsday predictions and you'd go to the masjid and say, okay, like these people don't go to the masjid to begin with. Their forecasting in some ways is just a means by which they're validating their own lives. Yeah, I was They don't like, go to the masjid. So they think it's irrelevant and pointless and backwards and all this stuff. So they think it's just going to die out, right? It's funny, like people have that, like, oh, these people don't measure that are irrelevant. They don't know any of the things that are going on, blah, blah, blah. And now, like, now I look at it, I actually envy yeah. the uncles that can come to Isha every night and have no idea about any of these things. I'm yeah. like, I wish I was that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I appreciate the chutbahs where... You know, you're not hearing the latest political update or someone who's trying. Oh, I to can't be, stomach those. Yeah. You know, trying to, you know, be relevant socially and talk about the latest news stories and just give me a basic Dean reminder and not happy. But in, in many ways now, what's become unfortunate is that those things have become the norm, because if you don't talk about them, you know, people are now expecting them. So now the, the sort of gateway and the bridge between what's happening in the virtual world and what's happening in the real world is much tighter 
and much more closely connected. And it's, it's difficult because there's fewer and fewer places where you can just escape, right? Yeah. There's, there's just nowhere where you can escape it. And I think that that is, is creating a lot of problems for people and certainly forms of personal dissatisfaction, alienation, depression, loneliness. It's a big problem we have today. And I think they're all contributed to it by this because a lot of people just feel like, you know, we just, we just, we don't have real human friendships. We don't have those, we don't have those spaces where you can really feel the warmth. You know, it's weird. We don't associate warmth with guys get togethers. Yeah. Because they're just so like, you know, there, there's a lot of roughhousing to it. Right. It were, you know, with, I mean, most jokes. guys get together as everyone just tearing each other down. Exactly. Right. You're just, you're just like cracking jokes and making fun of things and laughing and talking, you know, and that's kind of the get together. Right. And you're, you know, you may have people having a conversation here on this and this and that, but it's not a place that you typically would associate the word warmth with. And yet in some ways, you know, the terms that have become very cliche about inclusive, right. Yeah. And, and and about like, hey, someone just gets assimilated into this right away and he's just one of the guys. Regardless of how different he is, regardless of what his background is, regardless of age, right? We're just hanging out as guys. And you're one of the guys, right? Like grab a pizza, sit down, let's chat, right? And that, that feeling of sort of brotherly warmth is something that it's, it's rarer to find, right? Yeah. I mean, MSAs, right? I think one of, you know, for our generation, one of the biggest vehicles for people discovering their own religiosity and becoming practicing Muslims was an MSA. I cannot count the number of Muslims who entered college, nominally religious, mostly secular, not too liberal, but, you know, just not a very religious upbringing. They start building relationships in the MSA and by year two or three, they're juniors, they're sophomores, they're on the board of the MSA, they're yeah. organizing a lot of the events, they're coming to the hangouts. And, you know, now it's, you know, their, their grades are taking a hit because of how much time they're giving to making sure that, you know, the general body meeting has cookies and soda <laughs> and the chairs are set up and they're not doing their yep. schoolwork anymore. And, and it's, it was just astonishing just how many people had that experience, right? The sheer number of people that had that experience together around the same time and how effective MSAs were in spite of the fact that many of them were not like terribly well organized. Oh, they yeah. That, you know, MSAs weren't, it's not like these MSA boards were thought leaders and visionaries or anything. We were just, we were just students on campus that were trying to put stuff together and you know, for us, we, we'd have, you know, basketball tournament for guys. We did, we did brothers get togethers, right? Where we'd rent out, you know, we'd rent out this, uh, you know, like a game room and have some pizza. And then we pray Salah afterwards. And, you know, you just have these events and suddenly the circle of the brothers grows and grows and grows. And this goes, this was pre WhatsApp. Yeah. Or any, any communication medium to keep people together. We, we mostly just had the email list. But in sort of the day-to-day -day living, that circle was really sustained through your time on campus spent together, right? Mm -hmm. It was seeing them on campus. It was hanging out with them, sitting with them, you know. It's running into them when you're not expecting to. Absolutely. And just talking them, talking to them in the hall. You know, you're both eating and it's like, hey, you want to you eat together? 
and suddenly you and this person who you really didn't have any plans with are now just talking about life and you know you're you're networking and you're bonding yeah. and all of that bonding happened with so many people from so many different walks of life that it was really a beautiful thing right it was an, it was an amazing thing to have happen because it was such even for very strict MSAs right i mean we we were not a we were a very strict MSA especially by today's standards right and yet it was so easy for people who weren't part of the group, certainly for a lot of them, not all of them, but for a lot of people who were non-religious, we, we were still able to sort of include them. Yeah. And many of them became very religious people on their own. And many of those people maintained their religiosity decades after that's all over, right? It's been like a decade and a half since I've school, right? <laughs> and, yet, and yet, you know, many of those people still very religious people, mashallah, and that that sort of development and the cultivating of the religiosity happened in a place where, you know, they were able to discover faith alongside other people and alongside other friends, alongside brothers, right? You know, that's, that's tough to replicate in social media where, you know, to, to a large extent, you know, many people who are religious can be very off-putting. Many people oh, yeah. are, this can be very alienating and off-putting. And so people who are in the same frame of mind at the same stage of their own personal development can come, come across things that they'll look at and say, well, that's, this is like a really weird religion. These are strange people. This isn't something that I actually want to own fully or be around. And, you know, in some ways, in some ways, those people can be driven further and further away. You know, their opportunities aren't the same. And the lived spaces where they can actually develop those friendships are far fewer, especially in quarantine now where you really don't have any of those lived spaces. But even outside of quarantine, because most people are just on, even on campus, most people are just on their phones. Yeah. Right? Like I think that's one thing that was a little bit different, right? That yeah. I think you and I went to college before. I mean, I had a cell phone in college, but not a, not a smartphone. Yeah, me too. But I wasn't on my phone all day. Right. You know? I wasn't, you know, the idea that I would just be walking around staring on my phone, like staring at my phone. For like one text messaging then is not what text messaging is now. No. And text messaging cost money back then. It wasn't unlimited. You know, you weren't just going to drop texts like that. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. And you had to you had to do the special type of uh, keep. Not, it was a little keyboard with, you know, each number has three letters on it. And there was a certain way yes. of typing. It was, it was it very inconvenient. Easy. Yeah, uh, there, there were people who were really good at it, but it was mostly inconvenient to write it. This is our version of walking three miles barefoot in the snow to school. Yeah, I know. I mean, usually I remember a lot of my texts would, if I'm meeting somebody, I would just text, you know, the building and time and front desk or something like that. And that, that would be the text, you know, not a full exchange of ideas or something like that, which I actually think because of what's happened on social media platforms, it's actually... It encouraged a lot of the alternative messaging platforms like WhatsApp and Telegram and Signal and all of that, because in some ways, people are looking for spaces where they can have dialogue and discussion with people that they know without having it in full public view. Yeah, I, was say, I think a lot of what used to be debated in public yeah. now has shifted to semi-private. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think even that has introduced problems because... You know, it's it's not a natural or organic form of discussion. And the bigger the groups become, the more they give way to that same combat attitude. So, yeah. And I mean, also like, yeah. and you know, it's because we're in yeah. uh, 
some we share some groups in common. Yeah. There will be a discussion one day and the next day, the discussion will have died down, but, and I, I'm guilty of this hundred percent. I'll send something just trolling because of that discussion. Yeah. Just knowing like, oh, this is going to get into yeah. that other person's skin. So I'm not sure. <laughs> and it's a yeah. joke, like is you know, is yeah. good hearted or whatever. But again, to your point, it's not something that would happen naturally if you're in physical proximity. Uh, no, of course not. And, um, you know, it's weird. I mean, I've been on WhatsApp groups where people absolutely lose it. They melt down. They ruin relationships with people. They unravel at times because they're so angry and upset about what's been said or what's taken place. And that's unfortunate, but in some ways it's expected, right? It's, it's an eventuality with the way a lot of these groups have been formed and the types of personalities that are there. And the fact that what you've done is it's almost like a social experiment, just throw a hundred people who have radically different views in a room and have- That was the reality TV formula. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's weird. That's I used the... to always think. I used to always think, like, why are these people so disagreeable? And now you realize that's... that. Yeah, no, that's you, you what... put people in a room for a week together, and you're going to get some good footage of them just hating each other. Yeah, Big you Brother know? and the what was the MTV ones? I forgot the old ones. I, I you know, the only one I watched uh, actually the the main ones I watched were all the food ones, <laughs> <laughs> and even the food ones would get yeah, people Hell's Kitchen and stuff. Death. Yeah, yeah. You just get people who are just, you know, fighting with each other. Even like what was, um, you know, even like the Master Chef ones and stuff. Like yeah. All of these have so much cattiness and these, these, these really immature fights and there's entertainment value. But now you, you realize how adults can succumb to that type of behavior when put in that type of place long enough. When the pressure is applied for a long enough period of time, it's 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 a pressure cooker, right? Like it's just it's it's just waiting to blow, and that's that's what ends up happening on a lot of the larger discussion groups. And so, to me, a lot of the best discussion or groups that I'll see that are large in composition are ones where people actually can't post. And it's just an admin-led thing. And yeah. admin is someone that you enjoy following and receiving their updates from. And so, you know, they'll, they'll post an update daily or something like that. But it does not actually provide a mechanism or a vehicle for real exchange. I mean, it's just too many people. Do you, by the way, do you think that faith or religion exacerbates these problems or makes it easier to deal with? Um. You know, I, I think I think these problems are contributed to by a context that makes it more difficult to be a faithful person, right? What does it mean to be religious today? What does it mean to be religious today? I mean, that's that's a very that's a very different question, right? I think if I someone mean, one, prays five times a day, they're probably religious. Yeah, and you know, maybe not even that. Maybe not even that. Maybe they just post a lot of things about their religious. They just fight about religion all day, and so they're considered religious, right? You know, when I when I was um, when I was growing up, which is back when you were growing up, you know, a lot of the people who we know who were very religious and really symbols of religiosity, uh, they didn't have a TV, they didn't watch TV, they didn't have movies. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. relig. If we but called religious, someone religious. religious yeah. It was because auntie wore a hijab, uncle yeah. had a beard, yeah. they went to the masjid all the time, there was yeah. no TV in the home, yeah. they read Quran all the time, yeah, they yeah, only yeah. ate halal meat, like, it was, you know, like, check, check, check all the boxes. 
yeah, even even for me, it's you know, once once you you know becoming religious in some ways, even though you had that sort of social context that could encourage it and that could put you in touch with people, that made that prospect less intimidating. In some ways, there was a much higher leap in that you appreciated what that shift in your life was going to mean, and so you became a religious person on campus and you were an MSA board member and things like that. You were also a person who probably spent a lot of time in the prayer space that your campus provided. You were also a person who attended all of the religious programs and classes and events. And you were probably a person who was sitting in the front row at those events, who took notes. You were probably a person who sat with other friends and talked about those religious things afterwards. And when you met people, the, the things that you learned were things that you tried to act upon in ways that, you know, may have even annoyed some people, right? You, you sort of became a bit of a die in yeah. the way that you thought about, okay, this is now my responsibility towards other family members and towards other friends and towards other uh, acquaintances that I have. And so all of those things were the sort of the outcomes of adopting a a religious persona and a religious life and what the expectations were. And because of that, when you're hanging out with people who are religious, when you stray, their appeal to a shared set of vocabulary and to a shared set of standards means something to you, right? So if you're out of line or you behave out of line or you say something that is not consistent with that image, not only are you self-conscious of it, but your friends are too. And so you're on guard, but your friends are on guard. And so there's a mutual reinforcement of your own behavior and the way you're supposed to do things. In some way, some ways, it's very interesting in that social media polices behavior, but it polices behavior in, in far more dysfunctional ways, in ways that aren't ethically or morally rooted and have far more to do with intimidation and being mocked and ridiculed and insulted and a certain type of a uh, fear of public rep- reprisal than it does with anything related to sort of being a person of integrity, right? Which is what that was all about. So I think, I think in some ways, a lot of what we see is the erosion and deterioration of that religious individual and what that actually ends up meaning for people, right? Do you think any of it is related to, and I know I don't know if you've written about this, but I know we've talked about this a little bit, but yeah. the idea of religiosity being reframed as social justice, right? Where, you know, not to diminish or minimize particular causes, but the idea of using a cause to define religiosity instead of the other way around. Yeah, I think I think that's probably that's probably a part of it. I think there are a lot of things that over time tend to erode the strength of a person's religion, religious convictions. Certainly if a person's not living their religion, then it's very difficult. You know, how long can a person pretend? I mean, certainly these days a person can pretend for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's not hard to build a brand and to live with that brand for many years and to, to self-present in a particular way. And so it's, you know, in some ways people can fake for a long time, but it, it you know, that, that's still, is a deterioration of religiosity because that person who's faking in the real world actually isn't going to observe what their religion is asking of them. And even in their public religious persona is going to flagrantly transgress what that religion expects of them. And they're probably going to find support from other people who are in a similar position, right? And so so I I think that's certainly a problem where you just have fewer and fewer people who are living out and 
sort of embodying their religious commitment in a really fulsome and serious way. But I think, you know, religion historically mediates our communications with other people in a way that in, when, when religion's done well, makes us better people. And so it makes us the type of people who are less susceptible to gossip. It makes us the type of people who are less susceptible to slander or insulting. Or it makes us the type of people who try to be kind to people and charitable to them. And we become more generous and we look to spend our time in doing good actions, right? Those are all things that, you know, religion tends to promote. Certainly Islam promotes, right? And the Sharia promotes. And that's why when, you know, traditionally when people became religious, it was accompanied with all of that stuff, right? At least more normatively than it is today. You know, when you, when you have a loss of religious spaces and you have religion redefined in ways that are far more superficial and more aesthetic, mm. right? I think the idea that, you know, what, what does religious meaning hold for the average person, it becomes more difficult to really stand up for that. Because in some ways, everybody seems fake, right? Everybody yeah. seems fake, right? Like, here's, here's this truth teller, here's this influencer, here's this, and, and they're just all putting on a performance for the public. And, um, you know, it's weird. I remember, and you probably went through this, I remember when I, when I, I sort of started embracing my own religiosity, one of the things that was not available to me was the idea of becoming a speaker, right? Like the yeah. idea of becoming a speaker was like, who are you? You're like 20, right? And so what I used to do to help out was I used to give khutbas in high schools. So we had area high schools that needed khutbas. So I used to help out on Fridays and I'd give khutbas in high schools. And although I was doing it just to help out area high schools, it ended up helping me develop my khutbah skills. Yeah. And over time, you know, some of the masajid in the area were expanding the number of khutbas they had, and they were in dire need of khatibs. And so after college, I became a regular khatib on a number of rotations. And, you know, you're, you're in your mid-20s, and you're giving khutbas every single Friday. And when you're giving khutbas every single Friday, and this is not your full-time job, you can't prepare every single Friday for a new khutbah. Yeah. So you recycle. My experience recycle. is almost exactly the same. Yeah. You recycle all the time, right? And if you're if you if you're good about it, you probably do a new khutbah a month. If you're bad about it, you just keep cycling through as many different locations as you can hit for months on end until you've worn that khutbah down to the bone. My record, then, my yeah. record was nine <laughs> weeks in a row. <laughs> and and it was one of those like Ramadan yeah. is coming. Ramadan is almost here. <laughs> okay. We're in the first week of Ramadan. Ramadan just ended. Ramadan was a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, no. And, um, you know, one of the things that I remember thinking to myself, and I think many of us as khatibs had this, was I can't do khutbahs every week. I just can't do it every week. And the reason I can't do it is not because I'm recycling my khutbahs, but because I don't feel good recycling my khutbahs every week. Like, it just doesn't feel good to me. Like, I don't feel right in front of Allah just recycling and regurgitating something lazily. And I can get by, and I know all of the rulings to make a khutbah valid, and I know all of the... Uh, yeah. you, can, you can be above average without trying. If yes. you, once, you, once you know what you're doing. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's exactly. like the really dangerous spot. Yeah, and, and the idea is that you get to a point where you say... I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. I would rather attend a khutbah that 
may be subpar to the audience. You know, people might not like it, but at least for me, it is keeping me grounded and, is, and it is reminding me of my own place in this whole sort of hierarchy of life. And, it, you know, my maqam is being yeah. reinforced because I'm, I, that's who I actually am. I'm a guy who needs to sit in the audience and, and practice my religion and listen to other people speaking to me as much as I am a person who is speaking, right? And, and you felt in some ways, you know, the, the way where, where you could get to a point where you feel like a bit of a performer, right? And that didn't feel oh, yeah. good. That didn't feel good. Like this yeah. idea, that I'm just showing up and I'm putting up this song and dance and I know when to get, you know, a little loud here and my, you know, my intonation and the way I stress points and all of that and storytelling. And it's, the, it's the worst I, on days where you just, like, yeah. you know, your iman goes up and down. Yeah. And you have khutbah on a day where you're down Yeah. and you really do have to fake it. Like, yeah. it, it's yeah. a horrible feeling. No, and, and you know, you get, and, you know, back then, you felt it a lot more. You felt it because you were viscerally in touch with it, because you were the person on stage, because you were in front of real live human beings, because those people would come up to you and say, Jazakallah khair, and because, you know, you were, you, were, you were brought face-to-face with the reality of what you were doing. Oh, man, one time... Uh, and I share this uh, story in Khuti workshop all the time is I gave khutbah right? and we always teach people, you know, yeah. and, and on an optimistic note, be uplifting, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I gave my khutbah. My mom comes up to me. She's like, why were you so angry? And yeah. I'm like, I wasn't angry. I'm like, I was positive. I was uplifting. You know, I hit all the points in my notes and she's like, no, you sounded angry. I went and watched the video because that much of the video recorded it. And I realized I didn't smile once the entire time. I had a long, like, I just had a long face. And I realized, like, I was in a crisis at work. And I literally was, like, overwhelmed. And I just ran out to go give khutbah. And I had, like, zero feeling of, like, actually doing it. You know? Like, if it wasn't, like, an obligation, I would have probably skipped it that day. (laughs) Like, that was how, you know, that's the mode that you're in. But then you have to get up and give it. And it's tough. Yeah. The only reason I'm bringing all this up is because I think in social media you're not brought face to face with the reality of what you're doing. Not right? at all. You don't, you don't feel it the same way, both the way that you are behaving and the audience that you are behaving in front of. You are detached. You're abstracted from the actual reality that would dawn on you in the day-to-day world. And so it can elongate and prolong that process out years actually something that would come to you within the first six months of giving khutbah now you're 15 years in and just coming to terms with the fact that hey i'm i'm just kind of a stooge on this i don't really feel this in any meaningful way i i've i've grown obsessed with the likes and the shares and the public accolades and the acknowledgements and my own sort of personal life has all sorts of failings and I'm not actually living up to my own calling, right? I read, I read something the other day that said that people online are performing for an imaginary audience. So it's yeah. like they post things assuming everyone is just like sitting there waiting to read their status update or like waiting to look at their picture. And so they, you know, they act and post content with that idea that people are just like waiting on them when you know, in reality, what are people doing on their phones? They're just flipping through everything really fast anyway. Yeah. Well, people don't interact with it the same, 
like the same level of interest. But, you know, it's surprising. In a lot of ways, those people have been vindicated because you'll see obscure people who write some controversial take and then someone screenshots it and shares it in a WhatsApp group. Yeah. And you'll go online and you'll say this person has 10 likes, but Allah knows how many different people have given this obnoxious True. take attention. And they've gotten exactly what they were anticipating. You know, it's interesting, your story with your mom. That's another thing, right? In some ways, you know, people didn't disagree with you as much, right? Most of the khutbah output after the khutbah was Jazakallah khair, Jazakallah khair, brother. Exactly. But when you had someone who disagreed with you, you felt it in a different way. Because here's your Muslim brother, here's your Muslim sister, and they have a real problem with what you said. And even if they had no legitimate basis for it. Oh, it affects you. Kind of, yeah. I remember I gave a khutbah one time and I was in the member and a person, brother passed me the note during the khutbah. And there was, I, there was a table set up in the corner that had some bottles of water on it. And he said, please ask the brothers not to take the bottles of water. It's for an event uh, after the khutbah. And so I announced it in the khutbah and I pointed to the bottles of water. And after the khutbah, there was a brother who came up to me really angry with me, really angry. He was upset. I could tell he was upset. I said, brother, is everything okay? And he said, I walked out of your khutbah. He said, I was so upset. Wow. And he said, and I didn't pray so He said, I just spent this time and I made the offering. And I asked him for forgiveness. And he said, um, and I guess the story was when I pointed to the water, he was going to get a bottle of water. Um, and so he thought I was calling him out, but I wasn't even look, like where it was totally. In the, <laughs> I was just saying, you know, there's a table here with water. Don't get yeah, you're water. just gesturing in the direction. Yeah, I was just gesturing. And he thought I was pointing and he said, I was so humiliated and oh, I've man. never been this embarrassed in my life. I said, brother, I, said, I don't even know who you are. <laughs> I said, I didn't see anything. I was in there and he was not, he didn't give in. Like he did not give me an inch. Right. Wow. <laughs> but I remember after that thinking, you know, I shouldn't give khutbas. Like, who am I to be giving khutbas? For weeks, I did not give a khutbah. I just took myself. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it seems like such a silly and ridiculous thing to go no, through. No, man. I've but get, like, in the real world, you go through that. And for me, I mean, I couldn't talk about it. I felt so guilty about it for such a long time. I, uh, you yeah. don't, like, people give you all types of compliments, but you yeah. remember them, right? Like, as you're mentioning this, I can very vividly remember two yeah. things that happened. One is, I don't even remember what my khutbah was about. All I remember is that after, you know, after finishing Salah, I said, this, you know, made Salam. And this, like, 19-year-old kid just comes right up to me after the Salam, taps me on the shoulder, Salam alaikum, brother, welcome Salam. Oh, it was a great khutbah, jazakallah khair. I'm like, okay. And he's like, you know, brother, when you recited Surah Fatiha, yeah. when you said Sirat al-Mustaqim, your thaw wasn't heavy enough. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, but was yeah. it heavy? He goes, yeah, but not enough. I said, okay, thanks. <laughs> I was like, yeah. you yeah. know. And then I had another situation where uh, this was a masjid that has two khutbahs and it was winter time. So, you know, usher time is really early. Yeah. And I did, you know, the I didn't set the, like, the masjid sets the timing. Masjid yeah. sets the time. I did everything on time. And the way that it was set up, the khutbah finished, I mean, the salah finished about, seven minutes before Asr time came in. Yeah. And as soon as I walked out, this guy started berating me, saying that I invalidated everyone's prayer, that it was Asr time. And, you know, like I took out my phone and showed him the Avant time and he just was going off about how I just 
ruined everyone's prayer and this is not valid and I'm like man yeah. like it was baseless but still that's the stuff that tends to stick with you and you're like always thinking about how do i prevent this from happening again well in some ways it's it's perhaps allah's way of keeping you humble right yeah and it's weird because online i've been berated and attacked and insulted much worse and it, it doesn't, doesn't matter yeah i just kind of brush off and go on yeah just but block. i understand i understand that for a lot of people social media can be brutal it can be brutal. I mean, when I, I see some, I see people times who get trolled or attacked incessantly I think it's, and targeted, and I'm like, man, this is vicious. It is. It's the most. Vicious. It's the most brutal for sisters I've seen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends. I I've seen brothers. I mean, sometimes guys who I don't think deserve it get it. I remember there was one. Um, I've mentioned the story before. I remember one time there was a. Uh, there was an MSA somewhere in the, in the U.S. And there was, you know, again, it's, it's an important cause, but there was a brother who was the president of an MSA who had agreed to go on one of these Israel trips with one of these, you know, groups that yeah. sort of purports nonprofit, but is in fact a uh, astroturf Zionist entity. And uh, they, he had agreed to go on this trip for the purpose of peacemaking and all of that. And this is an 18-year-old kid. I mean, 18-year-old kid on social media. And the number of people that were just ridiculing and insulting and attacking this kid, I just thought, Miskeen, you know, he's 18. Yeah. Like, give, give him a break. Cut him some slack. Like, I get it. This is an important cause. But you're not helping the Palestinians by just making fun of this 18-year-old brother. You know, if you, if you really cared enough, maybe you'd, mention, you'd message him privately. Like, this is not, at the end of the day, this is not a game-changing activity that's taking place. This was not a prominent organization. Well, also, it's what what this redemption are you offering nobody. to the individual? Yeah, this kid was a nobody. I mean, just get, cut him some slack a little bit, give him space, you know. And, and people get offended when you say stuff like this because say, "Oh, you're just you're just a soft on oppression." And it's no. I mean, no one no one's questioning the the urgency of the actual cause or the intensity of the actual oppression that's taking place against the Palestinians or the absolute necessity to work against it. But what we're, what we're questioning is whether or not this is actually doing anything to help remediate that. And I think a lot of times the discourse that we have can be so exacting in its expectations that there's, there's no latitude for very small things because the idea is, well, these small things are microaggressions. And if we let them pass, then, you know, at what you're actually letting go is this super awful thing, right? You're actually, that's what you're really allowing right. by not saying anything on this very minor thing. And, you know, sometimes that, you know, sometimes I tell people, you don't always have to make that connection. Right. Don't you, don't, you don't always have to take it that far. Right. Like you don't yeah. have to take it that far every time. You know, <laughs> Like just, OK, someone thinks that it doesn't just because they think that it doesn't mean it's going to lead to them becoming this. Whatever you think the long term consequence or short term consequence of that thought is, it's, it's not always the case that it turns out that way. And the mere risk of it shouldn't be something that puts you in a position where you're going to just go off on people in a way that has no proportionality to the nature of the grievance or the wrong. I wanted to ask you one final question that's going back to something we talked about a little before, you know, to yeah. the point of all these discussions and how difficult it is to recreate those environments, you know, maybe like the MSA of, of the quote unquote good old days, right? Yeah. How do you, how do you see us trying to, you know, get some of that, type of brotherhood, sisterhood 
that warmth back. I mean, not just social media, but now we've got the whole pandemic thing complicating things. I don't know. I don't, I don't have a good answer. I mean, I think in some ways we have to think really seriously about technologies and how we can use them more effectively. Right? I think there are probably ways to improve on how, how we use technologies and use platforms and become a little more deliberate and thoughtful about social media and then reevaluate, right? Sort of what are our objectives? What are we trying to get out of it? And then if we've been doing things this way, okay, let's shift course and let's reevaluate, right? It's really tough to be that sort of detached yeah. from the ongoing activity that's going on because typically you're, you're really entrenched and enmeshed in this day-to-day discussion and fight. But I think that people have to be capable of doing that and figuring out ways to simply do things better. Because I think I think there probably are ways. You know, WhatsApp, for instance, can be a great way to stay in touch with family, just the same way that it can be a place where people ruin their relationships, right? And so what are the things that can be done to help promote positive conversations? What are the things that we can do? And that thing might be, you know, spending less time online, right? Or spending less time on some of these social media platforms. But it's tough. I mean, you know, how do you, how do you get, you know, you're sort of asking, you know, it's like asking a parent, how do you get your kids to, uh, to stop playing video games or something, right? Or get them away from the TV. Oh, if someone could tell me that, I'd be very gracious. Yeah. I mean, you can tell them, oh, you know, <laughs> enroll them in sports and get them active and all that. And usually it's okay. You can enroll them in sports. They may not like playing the sport that you've enrolled them in. They'll just they play FIFA on, on. Yeah. Video games. They'll hold it against you and they'll be miserable. They'll just be waiting to get home just to jump on video games again, especially if it's just a league where they don't have any friends. Yeah. And so, you know, there's no, there's no like magic pill here. (laughs) There's no, there's no magic formula that I can think of in some ways because, because as, as we've, we've discussed, the, the lived spaces are so much easier to do this with. But now there are fewer people who participate in live spaces. And usually when they come to those live spaces, they come in there with a a ton more baggage. And they are emotionally, individually, psychologically at a different place and far less open and available to the types of contexts that were really welcoming in the past. You know, the idea of, you know, guys getting together and just watching sports, right? right? A person who, you know, when we're growing up, would just show up to the game and meet people and hang out and, you know, grab a slice of pizza and sit down today might show up and say, is this all we're going to do? You know, all you guys do is just sit around and watch football. And then, you know, that person would go home and write some status about (laughs) how like just brain dead this zombie like this group was and how not everyone's into sports football is such like a gladiator imbecilic activity and you know it's it, it's it's a sport that is you know uh, overseen by all these like oppressive billionaires and whatever you know people can go and they can just rant about the time that they just had with you which they hated the entire time and so in some ways you get people who are who are sort of incapable of compromising and giving in ways that you know in our normal day-to-day lives we're more than willing we're more than willing yeah. to give things a shot right you see this with restaurants right when i'm yeah. yelp like pe- people are much quicker to judge their restaurant experience negatively than they oh, were yeah. last, right people people might have had some mildly unexceptional experience at a restaurant and it wouldn't be held against the restaurant and they'd still go back 
right? You'd go to the kebab store. They're running behind, whatever. You know, food wasn't as good as last time. The kebab was over. You still go back. It wasn't my like- my local taco place. <laughs> Three okay. times in a row over the past couple of months, they screwed up my order and left out like, you know, they forgot to give us queso one time. Throughout, you know, each time I was like, all right, whatever. You know, we got food. Yeah. Don't complain. <laughs> yeah. Like after the third time, I called them and I was like, hey, I just want to let you all know, this is like the fourth time you screwed up our order and left something out. And she was like, I'm so sorry. She's like, she's like, give me your name. I'm going to leave your name in our little register. Next time you come, chips and cake on us. I was like, all right. <laughs> no, but I, I see how quickly people respond to things like that. And so. But yeah, I, I would know. never go leave like a Yelp review. Like yeah, there, they there, forgot. There has, my... to be, there has to be a place where we can deflate the intensity a little bit. And where we can, we can channel people's passions in a more healthy direction. Right. And that is, I don't have an easy answer to it. Part of the reason I write long form is because I think long form naturally requires people to have a longer attention span. Uh, I'm I'm glad you said this. This is the number one criticism I get from people is, oh, your article is too long. And my thing is, it's almost the same, like, then it's maybe not for you. Like, it's for people who who are interested in that topic and want to read about it. Yeah, people say, oh, you know, it could have been shorter. Okay, well, that's they're not the target audience. Yeah. Target audience is whoever wants to sit down and read it. That's the target audience. Because those people to me are people who, and, and people who don't have those disciplines to me need to acquire them. It's not impossible to sit down and read an article that's a bit longer. It's just, it's not. I mean, every human being is capable of reading something that's longer than a paragraph. I think you, I think it's what's the more important skill, especially as you get older, is figuring out which things you're willing to devote that attention to, and then doubling yeah. down on it. Yeah, of course, not not everything's going to be worth your time, and not everything's going to be a topic or issue that you really have a passion or interest in. Fine, but I mean, you know, you know, fiqh of social media is not a terribly long book, right? And it's got great nuggets in it about. <laughs> You know, about how to use social media more better, you know, reminders from the dean and all that. And so, you know, if, if people want to improve the way that they participate in social media and get get some advice on it, they can read through it probably in an hour, maybe two, the, right? two hours. It's funny. Right? The most common feedback I've gotten on the book like yeah. the, is, oh, I read it in one sitting. Yeah. I'm like, cool. All right. I love that. Yeah. Like, it's not you know, it's not war and peace, right? <laughs> and, and so, you know, to me, I think, I think those are the types of things that people should try to do. It's, it's healthy to read, it's healthy to spend more time and try to contemplate things out of sight. And I think, uh, I think for people individually, to try to develop those relationships, I, I always say that I think the most important relationships that people can develop are the, are the relationships of the family and the household. Yeah, right? And that's perhaps the most devastating consequence of the modern world and technology and everything else is that just as much as it's brought people together, it's actually alienated and estranged people from the type of intimate connections that usually were unbreakable bonds, right? There was a day and time where you could never estrange yourself from your family. Like you're just, you're doomed to them, right? Yeah. It's like my siblings are my siblings. I can hate them, but it's my brother. I can hate her, but she's my sister. And I'm just always going to have them around. And you just, you're always going to be there for them regardless, right? Right. And 
you know, in, in a world where people are far more accustomed to making selections around who they want to include in their life, that's not a necessity, right? And plenty of people just select to really not have a relationship with their parents, not have a deep emotional relationship with their siblings or their uncles or their aunts or their cousins. Most people don't even have that same relationship with their spouses, right? And when it usually gets distant enough, just move on. People's relationships with their children, right? It's just, there's a sense to what, there's an extent to which um, the parent-child relationship has become much more a relationship of convenience mm-hmm. than it has a relationship built on a, a certain sense of duty from the parent towards the child and a, a different set of obedience and responsibility from the child towards the parent, right? That entire equation has been, has been fractured in many ways and undermined by a lot of things that are taking place. And so I think, I think certainly for us, we have to look to uphold those elemental bonds that have always existed in civilizations, you know, going back centuries and millennia. And certainly they, they sit at the heart of all moral and ethical societies, right? And when those, when those relationships erode to me, it's very difficult to have stable social relations between people. The law knows best. Well, Jazakallah here. Any, uh, oh, anywhere you want people to check you out or follow your work? Other than than Facebook, I'll link up to your Facebook. Well, yeah, you know, I'm trying actually this year. One of the things I like, I don't want you. I don't want any more followers. (laughs) No, no, I I try to write more on uh, on my blog, which is Medium. um, Slash, which I take full credit for making you start. By the way, yeah. Although I might be transitioning off, I don't know how to incorporate pagination, so I got to ask you about that. Okay, Uh, I'll ask you about that. This is over. All right, man. We'll yeah, if I figure it out, it. I'll still be writing there, inshallah. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Google Play or whatever podcast player you use. And please rate and review the podcast. As always, if you share it with a friend that's much appreciated, you can check the show notes for all the details and links. See you in the next episode.